Hello and welcome to the Aon Retirement and Investment Podcast. This month, as well as covering the usual pensions news, we'll be exploring risk settlement with two of our amazing specialist colleagues. So you're probably thinking that the podcast sounds a bit different this time, and that's because you have two new hosts. So I'm Jennifer Michelle. And I'm John Harney. Um, And before we get into the big pensions news, um, how's your January, Jennifer? How's 2024? Yeah, it's been great. Thanks, John. Um, I actually passed my CFA level one, which has been a great start to the year. What about oh. what about you? What's it been? Oh wow! Well, <laughs> that puts my that puts my January to shame. Um, but I have I've been busy with with clients, um, just making lots of plans, coming up with a lot mm-hmm. of strategies, and actually preparing for the Aon Pensions Conference series. So um, it's been it's been an exciting time. Um, but I suppose that's enough of our news. Let's crack into the pensions news of the month. Big news came in early January, where the pensions regulator published its final general code of practice, which has now been laid in Parliament. The code applies to occupational, personal and public service pension schemes. The code is expected to come into force before the end of March 2024, once approved by Parliament. If this is the case, the first triennial own risk assessment will be required within two to three years of the 27th of March 2024, depending on scheme year. The deadline is within 12 months of the last day of the first full scheme year after the code becomes effective. As expected, there are five sections within the code covering governance, funding and investment, administration, communication and disclosure and reporting to TPR. The code replaces and consolidates 10 existing codes of practice previously in place. In this final code, TPR provided clarity on its expectations in respect of risk management, and it has set these out in seven separate modules of the code. The DWP has published a response to its consultation on DB funding and investment strategy and the regulations have been published for parliamentary approval. These regulations are expected to come into force from the 6th of April and they will apply for valuations with effective dates from the 22nd of September 2024 onwards. It's expected that the pensions regulator will publish an updated code of practice on scheme funding, adding further information in advance of the 22nd of September. The DWP also notes that TPR will be reconsidering their fast track parameters following their consultation on the code of practice and fast track compliance. Some significant changes have been made to the draft regulations originally consulted on, which aim to ensure flexibility over long term planning and address concerns raised by the industry. The forward to the consultation response by the new Minister for Pensions, Paul Maynard, suggests that industry feedback has helped avoid reckless prudence and inappropriate risk aversion being introduced, and that the final regulations demonstrate the clear scope for schemes to take more investment risk. These comments are consistent with the direction of travel outlined in the Chancellor's Mansion House speech in July, which aimed to encourage more investment in productive asset classes. In December, the pensions regulator issued a new version of its guidance on cybersecurity principles for pension schemes. First published in April 2018, 
the guidance sets out practical steps that trustees can take to meet the expectations now set out in the general code of practice. Now, for the first time, TPR is asking trustees and scheme providers to report significant cyber incidents so it can build a bigger picture of the risks faced. This 2023 guidance builds on what the 2018 version called cyber resilience. This is the ability to assess and understand the risk, ensure the controls are in place, respond to incidents, and lastly, to report incidents. In January, Aon released the results of its latest DC Pulse survey with some fascinating insights. Here's just a few of the highlights, but you can find the results linked in the show notes. There has been a big jump over Q4 2023 in the number of schemes reporting increases in the number of DC members reducing saving levels or accessing their DC savings early. Member queries and concerns about investment performance remain high, despite markets being less volatile over 2023 compared to 2022. Schemes have responded by allowing additional flexibility to members, issuing additional communications and providing more support for members approaching retirement. Aon's biannual DC survey is open for responses right now, so please do click the link in the show notes to fill this in. Every respondent who completes the survey on behalf of a DC pension scheme will be able to receive a free benchmarking report, which will allow them to see how their own DC pension scheme compares to the wider market in areas such as contribution levels, charges, investment approach and member support. 2023 was a huge year for the buy-in and buy-out market. Everyone is talking about this, but what does that really mean? So today we're joined by two members of the team here at Aon who have been playing a key role in helping schemes secure buy-ins and buy-outs last year. We have Leah Evans, who's a partner and a specialist within our risk settlement team, and Hattie Goodwin, who's an associate partner in our investment team and who spends lots of time helping schemes to do this. So welcome, Leah and Hattie. Thank you. Thank you. So Hattie, you you were involved in some quite large deals last year um, and illiquid markets have been really challenging. But what were some of the key learnings coming out of these major deals? Yeah, so last year really was a, a record breaking year in terms of the, the sizes of deals coming to market and in particular those really big transactions, billion pound plus, and also a change in approach. So they're looking to ensure their full scheme. We're not looking at partial buy in transactions anymore. Um, and by nature of that, they have to be really well prepared with their assets. And as you said, illiquid assets are a problem. So particularly in the, the large schemes case, these can create a barrier to transaction because the majority of illiquid assets are not really normally very attractive to insurers. Um, insurers are governed by less flexible um, regulations compared to pension schemes. And so when we're prepping for transaction, making sure that we're holding the right types of assets and making sure that we're we're getting things into a liquid form so we're not having to sell out of them at big discounts is a real key criteria. So this is now a really big area of focus for both schemes and insurers. And there's loads of innovation 
going on in this space um, to help schemes who've got these assets, who've perhaps got to full funding quicker than they expect, still be able to take account of these as part of the transaction and maximise the value in what they're actually holding. And you'll have seen things like Boots transaction in the press at the end of last year and illiquid assets for them really were key to A, the affordability of the transaction, but also we saved an awful lot of money by structuring a solution for them that enabled them to complete the transaction with certainty in the price that they were going to get for these assets. So really watch this space, loads of innovation happening at the moment. That's great, thank you. And what can schemes do to prepare ahead of time of times then to avoid these sorts of issues? Well, firstly, talk to your investment consultants and we've got plenty, plenty of guidance for you if this is something that's on your radar. Um, but in a nutshell, being well prepared just means having assets that are well matched to insurer pricing and insurer pricing is different from your actuary's estimate of your liabilities. So you have to focus on a different target. And we want to make sure that if a buy-in transaction is affordable today, it remains affordable when you're going through the negotiation process, through all the contract pieces and liquid so reducing the cost. In practice, it means four things. So firstly, having really high levels of interest rate and inflation hedging to match the insurer's measure of the liabilities, as I said. And this is probably an increase compared to where you currently are hedging on your ongoing basis. Having an allocation to investment grade credit. So insurers hold significant amounts of investment grade credit, and this really does drive their investment strategy and pricing. So you can better hedge the movements in that pricing by holding the right type of credit. And then removing anything that introduces volatility. So selling down your growth assets that are not going to form part of that insurer's pricing basis, but making sure it's affordable when you're doing it. So we're really planning these sales well in advance, using assets like equities to close any funding gap, but then reducing the allocation to them and reducing volatility over time. And then I've already talked about illiquid assets, but making sure you've really thought about those at the very start of this process, giving yourself enough time to talk to the relevant people and to structure a solution that meets your objectives, both in terms of price certainty, certainty and timing when you're actually aiming for a transaction. And I think, Hashi, what you said there really focuses the mind on price because, mm -hmm. you know, all of those other things really do do hone in on that. And I suppose, Leah, if I could bring you in now, I suppose, how has insurer pricing changed over this kind of record-breaking year and can we see any evolving trends or, or anything that we see happening over this year? Yeah, well, so, I mean, as Hattie said, insurer pricing is linked to, you know, yields on certain assets, in particular credit. Insurers also use a lot of long-dated liquid assets. So when yields on those assets are attractive, you tend to get better pricing. At the moment, they're probably not at levels that we've seen in the past, but, you know, nonetheless, um, reasonably attractive compared to historic um, pricing. What's really interesting actually is that, you know, we've seen this massive demand from pension schemes and normally you might think, well, if everyone's trying to buy out, does that push prices up? And we haven't really seen that so much as a trend. So um, schemes are still able to transact at very attractive prices. And interestingly, the main change, I guess, from a scheme perspective isn't so much that prices have gone up 
across the board because all the insurers are busy, but that they might get fewer quotes, but the quotes that they get are still attractive. So I think schemes can take quite a lot of comfort from that in terms of, say, pricing. It's continuing to be attractive. Um, Obviously, you know, can't predict what will happen in the future, but it does perhaps change the way that, that the schemes approach the market and the the kind of range of quotes that they get. And I suppose then that begs another question around, I know we've talked about, you know, lots of demand in the market um, and those kind of billion plus transactions. What, what, what's happening with those smaller transactions? Is there any learning that they can take from, I suppose, everything Hattie and, and Leah you've been saying here so far? Yeah, well, one of the big um, big changes, I guess, at the small end of the market in particular, and by small, when we're talking about buyouts, we're probably talking sort of 100 million and below that, possibly 150 million and below that, is that um, there are a huge number of these cases in the market. And it, you know, it's a lot of work for insurers to price those and provide quotes. So whereas in the past, if we take schemes out to market, we might have expected sort of three, four quotes. Um, in many cases, that is no longer the case. And in particular for the small schemes, a lot of the insurers have developed streamlined processes which makes the process more efficient and makes it easier for them to price schemes um, and therefore easier for schemes to access the market. But insurers are often requiring schemes to work with them on an exclusive basis. So what that means is rather than sending the data to all the insurers and getting three quotes, is you might pick an insurer up front that you work with, you get pricing, and then you know, if that pricing works, you go on to agree uh, agree contracts. From an insurer perspective, that's clearly much more efficient and allows them to do more deals. Um, from a scheme perspective, you might think, oh, that's, you know, ha- not really quite sure about that. How can I make sure I get best terms? But we are finding that it can work really well to have a process like that as well, if you approach it correctly. And if you have some sort of sense for for how that compares. So what we do, for example, for schemes, we've got a sort of, you know, reference basis that we use the bulk annuity market monitor, which um, is based on market indices, things like credit spreads, guilt yields, etc., but also overlaid with other transactions that we've seen priced in the market. And we can use that quite effectively as a reference point for schemes, even if they're working on an, with an insurer on an exclusive basis. And we've got a really good track record of using that to negotiate discounts with insurers where the pricing put forward has not been in line with what we've seen on other transactions. So I'd say that's the big difference for, for small schemes. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the sort of streamlined process and moving away from full auctions. Yeah, I, I thought just if I could chip in as well for a second, John, um, Obviously, we see the trickle down effect. So when I talked about all these innovations in the illiquid space, as insurers get more comfortable offering these solutions and as we find more of these solutions in the market, the opportunities are there for small schemes to to, to mirror those approaches and help them maintain affordability in their transactions. But also there's the, you know, there's the the timing opportunity as well for a lot of these small schemes. So if you're really well prepared assets as well as benefits data you've got all your governance yeah if you've got a competitive process for a big scheme 
some of those insurers are going to lose out, right? Mm -hmm. That means they're likely to have capacity on their books. And what we've seen is that some small schemes who are well prepared are able to jump in and fill that gap and really take advantage of opportunities in terms of insurer capacity. And we know that resources are real constraint across the market mm -hmm. in terms of human resource. And if you've got everything in, um, in a really good shape to go and the insurers can see that you're well prepared and ready to transact, you can really take advantage of these opportunities if you're there at the right time. And it, it sounds as though that kind of exclusivity doesn't come at the cost of getting a, a good price and a, and a good deal over the line, particularly what you're saying there, if there is opportunistic capacity mm -hmm. there, I suppose. And listening to all that, I suppose my other question is, I know, Hattie, you mentioned about kind of partial versus full a little bit earlier. You know, is partial kind of a thing of the past now after what we've seen in 2023? Or do we think it might it might have a resurgence? Yeah, what well, I, I think a partial buy-in obviously is where, where you slice up a transaction and you might insure just your pensioners, for example, mm -hmm. as opposed to your whole, whole population. It used to be really common, but there was there was a bit of a crisis at the end of 2022 when um, we we saw rapidly rising yields, which obviously increased funding, but created a bit of a liquidity issue for a lot of schemes. Mm -hmm. So the problem with a partial buy-in is that buy-in policy becomes a very an illiquid asset on your balance sheet, and you need to make sure that whatever assets you have, but you know, backing the remaining liabilities in your scheme are going to be liquid enough and resilient enough to support the return they need, but also to withstand market movements. So following that, the crisis, it's become harder for most schemes, I think, who are seeing reduced liquidity across the board to, to have a resilient portfolio. But I was part of a you know 350 million transaction last year that did a partial buy-in because they had some remaining active members and some deferred members with some particularly complex benefits that weren't really insurable at the time. Mm -hmm. So we were able to structure the transaction and the remaining asset portfolio to, to, to support the residual liabilities and achieve a partial buy-in. But it took a bit more work, a bit more thinking and lots more analysis than we've ever done before. So it's not to say they're off the table, but I think the conditions under which they will work are a little bit different than than they were in the past. And Leah, I'm not sure if you want to chip in on that bit. Yeah, well, I mean, I was just going to say the flip side, obviously, of that little crisis, as you put it, is that um, <laughs> many schemes saw their funding level improve quite rapidly. And so they were in a position to do a full buy-in. Mm when they weren't expecting to be able to do that for, for you know, several years. And a partial buy-in can still very much make sense if it's part of a longer-term de-risking strategy. If you think you might be able to do a full buy-in, you know, within the next year or two, and that is where you're aiming for, there's probably a bigger question mark over whether it's worth doing a partial buy-in in between or just waiting until you can do this. The, the whole thing and the answer to that is very scheme specific you know depends on size uh, you know the bigger the scheme the more it might make sense to slice it up and if you've got a small scheme then it's probably not cost effective to pay advisor costs twice etc so there's very scheme specific considerations but a partial buy-in can still make sense for for, for for certain schemes i guess the other thing just to note is that 
if you are doing a full scheme buy-in and you probably want to convert it to a buy-out at some point in the future, there are just more things that you need to think about in terms of, you know, all the data and benefit review that you need to do, but also things like, you know, what do you do at a later stage if there are changes in the benefits or you find additional members, you know, what you might call residual risk, which you could potentially cover off with the insurer or you might want to cover off through, say, corporate indemnity, something like that. So you sort of need to have a bigger picture discussion, I guess, around risks and and the long term plan, um, as well as just focusing on the transaction itself. Thanks both. That was that was really insightful. And just before you go, do you have a piece of advice for our audience out there, um, just in respect to risk settlement? Uh, Leia, do you want to do you want to kick us off? Well, I mean, the obvious one, obviously, is always the preparation. And as you already mentioned, it. You know, if you're prepared, you can react quickly. You can go to market if there's an opportunity. And you know, preparation mainly talk about data and assets and benefit specification, etc. Um, and most listeners will probably have heard their various consultants mention this before. Um, the other big thing, though, I would throw in there in terms of the preparation is actually be really clear at the start and take the time across all the stakeholders, including the trustees and the sponsors, to work out what you're really trying to achieve and then set your strategy for how you approach the market, how you approach the preparation, etc., to reflect that so you know if if there are reasons to move quickly make sure you can move quickly if you're concerned about price think about getting ready and when to approach the market and also think about you know does it make sense for you to work with an insurer in exclusivity either because you're small or maybe because you're big and you've got certain complex features that will be easier to solve with one insurer and partnership there is no sort of one size fits all strategy there are certainly very streamlined processes and we've got a streamlined process as well that can be really efficient for smaller schemes but it needs to be right for your scheme and it's well worth spending the time up front to work out what you're really trying to achieve with this and what the best strategy is for you and then you know your advisors can help you through whatever that is but do think about it up front Hattie yeah well preparation obviously think but uh, compared to a couple of years ago assets are now considered at the start they're not just part of the final transition to insurer anymore they become a key part of the strategy when you're thinking about buyout whether you're 10 years away or six months away from a transaction Um, and making sure you're fully hedged as I said earlier helps give you the time to sort out things like GMP equalization or any benefit measures because you're protecting that position and as I mentioned I mean I'm going to talk about liquids again because it's my favorite subject at the moment but (laughs) what we're seeing is that illiquid assets and asset implications can really be drivers of the time frame for when you end up going to market they can have an impact on affordability and everything else associated with the transaction so just making sure that you really are considering every aspect from the start of the process you're talking to all the people that need to be talked to and everybody's aligned so that when you do set your goal the time frame and the pricing constraints are really clear 
to everybody from the outset so you know what you're aiming for and everybody can line up to get there yes and hopefully get there they they will and i suppose where we've got to is is the end of this um little chat so thank you so so much i think it, it goes without saying that the aon specialist risk settlement team god that's a mouthful they're they're, they're always <laughs> yeah. happy to help always happy to help and and as we say no one size fits all so do please reach out to us um if you're if you're listening and want to hear more but thank you so, so much to Hattie and, and Leah for sharing your experience and insights today. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So that's it for this month of the Aeon's Retirement and Investment Podcast. You'll be able to find links to everything we've discussed today down in the show notes down below. If there's anything you'd like us to cover in any future episodes, then please do get in touch and let us know. You can find us on LinkedIn or you can just email us at um, talktous at aeon.com. And please be sure to subscribe, share this podcast with your pensions and investment friends, or even leave a review because that really helps other people to find us. So we'll see you next month for more pensions and investment news and views. Bye for now.